Good evening, everybody. It's great to be here. And I have to admit, I'm feeling a little pressure tonight. Can I be honest with you? Well, all the, all the teachers have different styles, different approaches, different perspectives. So there's no competition between us. Doug and I spend a lot of time talking about our messages and some constructive feedback. And one of the things that he mentioned last week is absolutely true. How much time it takes to put together a lesson. And um, because you're a very astute group. You can't get up here and wing it. If you don't put the work in, you're going to know it. And for Doug to do what he did last week with relatively short amount of time, I've got no excuse. So it's like, brother, thank you for serving us so well last week. But also, thanks, Doug. And here we go. <laughs> so we're in the home stretch of our study. I mean, next week is the, is the last week of our um, study of, of 1 Timothy. And tonight we are entering into chapter 6. So specifically, we're looking at verses 1 through 10. So before we start, I think there's something important to kind of keep in your backpack as we begin this journey tonight. And it's the understanding that this, 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 this portion is part of a bigger picture. Now, I know all the time that's always the case, but especially tonight, because if we don't pay attention to what Paul's overall objective is, and, and a theme that he started in chapter 4 that threads its way all the way through this, this, this portion tonight seems a little bit incohesive, particularly the first and second verse from 3 and, and 10. So remember, Paul's objective is to prepare Timothy to be the best leader of the Ephesians church that he can be. And secondly, to keep Timothy aware of the things that he's going to encounter. So already we see that, that Paul has taught Timothy how to select elders because that's going to be important. He talked to Timothy about apostasy and heresy. He knew that Timothy was going to encounter widows, so he put that in there. He knows that Timothy is going to encounter the group that we're going to talk about tonight. So Paul has basically put all this together. And then also the thread that goes through this whole thing is false teaching. So now as we get into it, we'll understand that he's talking specifically about a false teaching pertaining to this one group. And then he kind of branches out and starts to bring back in all the false teachers, some characteristics about all of them. So we're going to look at all that tonight. It'll make sense. Well, hopefully it makes sense as we're going through. But I think it just keeps everything a little bit more seamless if we kind of have an idea of where he's going with this as we, as we look at this. Because when you start to dig deep into it, it's easy to lose perspective of everything else. So what we're going to do tonight is what we usually do. I'm going to read through the passage, and then we'll go back and we'll look at each verse. So 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, 
dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take any, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, what a privilege it is to be here tonight with my brothers and sisters, Lord, mulling over your word, Father, looking at it intently. We thank you for this opportunity, God. We pray that you would do in our hearts what only you can do, Father. Help us to receive this message and to live it out for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. All right, so first verse. Let all who are under a yoke of bond, as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. All right, so there's two perspectives that it's important for us to keep focus on as we look at this tonight. One is, what is Paul saying on the surface and the implications of that to our lives? And also, what's he saying in, 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 in spirit? In other words, what's the expectation that the Lord has for us in these times as revealed through what Paul is writing to Timothy? So we'll see that although there are two different perspectives, the implication is the same. God is to be glorified no matter what. So let's start with the, 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 what Paul is saying on the surface. The first part of the sentence is, let all who are. Now we can stop right there. Because right now we're being informed that this message, what Paul's getting ready to say, doesn't pertain to everybody. So on the surface, it looks like there's an exclusive group. Again, on the surface. We'll find out later on that, that it goes beyond that. So who is this audience? Who's this selected group? It's all those who are under a yoke. A yoke is a device that pairs primarily two oxen together with one another and attaches them to a load that they have to, that they have to pull. The oxen can't separate themselves from one another and they can't break away from the, the burden that they're pulling. So basically they're stuck. But typically the word yoke is used metaphorically in the Bible to describe bondage or servitude or a connection between people or, or, or things. So for instance, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And in Matthew 11.28.30, Jesus says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's like, give me that yoke, right? The next word in verse one is as. Now, as is going to explain what those people, whatever that select group is, is connected to. What's on the other side of that yoke? Now, remember, back when Paul wrote this, and centuries after, no one had their own copy of this letter to read along with as somebody else read it aloud. They had to hang on every word. They did not know what was coming next. So 
Maybe Paul was going to say, let all who are under a yoke as a husband or wife. That would make sense. Not all the hearers were married, right? And if you were in a loving, happy marriage like I am, you're okay with that yoke. That was kind of a joke. Well, it's not a joke. I mean, I am. I mean, I mean, so. But anyway, so that would make sense. Or maybe Paul was going to say, let all who are under a yoke as a parent. Again, not everybody would be parents, so that would make sense. And parents usually love their kids, so they're okay with being yoked to that responsibility. Or what if Paul said, let all who are under a yoke as a Christian? We just read that Jesus said, take his yoke upon us. So that would make sense. So as the, as the reader gets to the word as, you know, I imagine kind of a drum roll, right? So they're, they're just waiting. So the, 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 the reader goes, let all who are, and the, the listeners are going, okay, all right, I'm with you. Under a yoke, huh, all right, do we want to be in this situation? As, okay, here we go. He's getting ready to reveal it. Bond servant. They're like, what a bond servant. But then they maybe, maybe they move to self-preservation. They went, wait a minute. Okay, okay, let all run under a yoke as a bond servant. Well, I'm not a bond servant. They may be a bond servant, but it's not me. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, there were a lot of bond servants, so a lot of people were impacted by what Paul was writing. But maybe the other readers were, I mean, hearers were going, you know what, well, I'm not a bond servant. Wake me up when you get to the part of the letter that impacts me. Again, on the surface. Now, I've listened to a lot of pastors preach on this message and read a lot of commentaries because at the very beginning, it took me a little while to kind of understand, to, to get a ground on, on where I was going to go with this. And what I noticed were a lot, not all, but a lot of, 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 of speakers and commentaries kind of either tried to explain this verse away or lessen the severity of it. Either tried to explain it away or lessen the severity. And they sure don't want to spend a lot of time on it, that's for sure. And the reasons seem to vary. Now, most popular versions of the Bible, like the NIV, New King James Version, don't use the word bondservant. You use the word slavery. And that's an uncomfortable subject, particularly for us in America, given our, our history of it. You know, one of the things, too, that... Man, I kind of lost my spot. Oh, and then the other side of it is some looked at it as, well, it's, it's really no big deal. Okay, it happened. There's no slavery here anymore. We got through that. Let's just hit this and, and then move on. You know, as an aside, there, half of the countries in America, slavery is not illegal. It may not be legal, but it's not illegal. So in other words, there's nowhere written in their laws going, you can have a slave, but if they do have a slave, or they're in some kind of servitude, nobody's going to step in and do anything. It's estimated that 49.6 million people on this earth still live in some form of, of slavery. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the attitude of some of the American speakers on this verse seems to be more like, let's get over it and move on. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. If something is mentioned, it, it must be important, and it deserves our attention. So we need to explore why, why it's there and how it applies to us, and, and hopefully that's what we do tonight. So yes, Paul addresses this to everybody who is a bondservant. 
Now, the speakers and the commentaries that I mentioned that kind of try to write this off a little bit mention slavery very quick, and they point out something that's very true. They say that the, the slavery that Paul was talking about is way different than the slavery that comes to mind, usually when we think about slavery. And though their motive for trying to disregard slavery is kind of a little bit concerning, their point is accurate. There was a difference between the kind of slavery that occurred here in America and the slavery that Paul talked about. The type of slavery that occurred in America is called chattel slavery. In his book, Ideas of Slavery from Aristotle to Augustine, author Peter Garnsey explains that chattel slavery had three distinguishing characteristics. One, a chattel slave was property, and the slave's owner's rights over his slave property were total, covering the person as well as the person's activity. Two, the slave was kinless, stripped of his or her social identity and the process of capture and sale. And three, the slave was denied the capacity to forge new bonds of kinship through marriage. So basically, any aspect of humanity was stripped away from the slave. It was as much as, as a horse and buggy. On the other hand, the type of slavery that Paul referred to as bondservant was, was specifically indentured servitude. Indentured servants voluntarily sold themselves into the ownership of a master whom they owed money and paid off their debt with service. They held kinship rights, they could get married, they had personal legal rights relating to physical protection and breach of contract, and they had freedom of movement. A lot of times they would go, do what they have to do, and then go home to their families. And they could be freed from service once they either paid off their debt with money or with service. So there was a big difference between American slavery and the slavery that Paul was talking about. A significant contributor to the racial discourse within the American church is the interpretation of what Paul said and what he didn't say about slavery. And for instance, and, and I'll be blunt, this, the, Southern, the, 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 the Southern Baptist Convention is, at least historically, has been one of the most overtly racist mainstream denominations ever. Now, granted, it, it, it's trying to make some changes. I mean, for a little while, they had a, an African-American executive director. They just elected another director who's trying to clean up its history. But, I mean, clean up its, its image. But the history of the SBC has not been kind to people of color, particularly blacks. It was, it was founded in 1845, so considering Chattel slavery started in the country in 1816. It was kind of fairly new when it, when it came in, and for a while, it was the predominant denomination. And it believed that chattel slavery was ordained because Paul didn't ex expressly speak out against it. In fact, they took verses like 1 Timothy 6.1 and other verses where Paul tells slaves to obey their masters as Paul's support of slavery, and if Paul supported slavery, then obviously God ordained it. The thing is, without context to the rest of Scripture, it would appear that that's the case. I mean, on the surface, Paul is clearly telling people that are under the yoke of slavery to obey their masters. That's undeniable. In order to correctly reconcile Paul's and, and thus the Bible's position on slavery, it's important to understand that when Paul and other writers tell servants to, to, to be subject to their masters, they're not talking about chattel slavery. 
And it's by God's grace and power that what the writers of the Bible wrote are applicable from the moment they wrote it through generations upon generations. So because Paul was writing under the unction of the Holy Spirit, of course the truth of what he wrote was going to endure forever. But Paul wasn't thinking about that when he wrote that. He was just writing about things that his readers were facing in, in real time. Paul didn't address chattel slavery because it just wasn't in view at that time. Chattel slavery was not an element in the societies in which he planted and supported churches. But indentured servitude was a normal aspect of society. So we, we know that Paul had to have encountered bond servants and people that owned bond servants. In fact, the book of Philemon, which in Philemon is, 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 a, a, is a gentleman that owns bond servants, at least one. He owned a, a young man named Onesimus. And we read in um, verse 8 through 16, Philemon is only one chapter, but we read that Onesimus ran from Philemon to Paul. So Paul writes the letter to Philemon saying, I'm sending Onesimus back. And he asks Onesimus to take him back in a particular way. In verse 16, he says that you might have him back forever, not as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So yes, Paul spent time with both bondservants and the people that owned them. Now, some historians estimate that one-third of the people living in Rome during the time of, of Paul's era were, were indentured servants. This means that indentured servitude was a huge part of the Roman economy. In his book, Message of Ephesians, author John Stott writes, slavery was an unfortunate but integral part of Roman society. In most cities, there were many times more slaves than free people. It would therefore have been impossible to abolish slavery at a single stroke without the complete disintegration of society. Ancient society was economically as dependent on slavery as modern society is on machinery. And anyone proposing its abolition could only be regarded as a seditious fanatic. It had to be tolerated a while longer, although to be sure, that while longer lasted much, much too long as a symptom of what Christians called this present evil age. Commentaries and some speakers kind of debate the condition of indentured servants. Some say, yeah, bond servants were different than chattel slaves, but it was still slavery, and their condition was pretty deplorable. Others go, well, you know, it was kind of more like an employee-employer relationship. It wasn't all that bad. As a matter of fact, it kind of benefited everybody. Now, our objective tonight is not to get to the bottom of that, and it's a good thing because we couldn't. But what we can see is that Paul recognized the reality of indentured servitude, and he understood its impact on the economy, and he didn't outright speak out against it. But we have scriptural proof that he did not support it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So Paul urging Philemon to take Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as a brother, and here telling bondservants to end the agreement if they could, doesn't sound like somebody who supports indentured servitude. So we can also deduce that if he didn't support something like indentured servitude that was nothing like chattel slavery, then he's certainly not going to support an institution based on racial inferiority like chattel slavery. 
I mean, we're talking about the man that wrote in Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. As awful as slavery is, at the end of the day, from Paul's perspective, the details and the condition of the, of, of the slave and what they endured is really inconsequential. Because to, his objective is to promote godliness. Paul's mission wasn't to abolish wrongdoings, as wrong as they may have been. It was to promote godliness. Author Clinton Arnold writes, Paul never provides a theological rationale for the institution of slavery. Yet he does establish a theological basis for male headship and female submission. His only concern is to provide perspective on how to live as Christians within this empire-wide socioeconomic structure. Just as he never tries to subvert the Roman political structure in spite of its deficiencies and the perversities of its rulers, so he does not engage in social protest and lead a revolt against the evils of the institution of slavery. Paul wasn't insensitive or uncaring. He knew what was going on. He knew that it was wrong. He just had a singular focus, and that was to promote the gospel and godly living. So on the surface, though, everything I just talked about regarding slavery is kind of academic to us. Nobody here is a bond servant. But there's a huge takeaway that we all need to grasp in Paul's address of this. And that, the, the, that message is that God demands to be glorified regardless of the situation. If God demanded slaves, regardless of who they were and what the condition was, to glorify him, then what excuse do we have? I don't think it's going to work for us to say, God, I know I don't honor you at home as I should, but man, this wife you gave me and these kids, they drive me nuts. You understand that, right, God? Or to say, God... My boss is a hard, hard man. If I, don't, if I don't treat him with the same disrespect that he treats me, he's going to run all over me. You understand that, God. Based on what Scripture tells us and what we just looked at tonight, I don't think he's going to accept that as an excuse. God demands to be glorified. So here's something else we can learn from Paul's perspective about slavery. We know that Paul didn't and, and couldn't take a stance against it. Now, fortunately, these days, there aren't any blatant wrongs that we can't take a formal stance against. There's, 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 there's methods and avenues for that. Our problem is, as a society, we can't agree on what's right and wrong, and we can't figure out how to civilly disagree about it. However, we learn from Paul that we can provide godly counsel regarding aspects of society that, that aren't, aren't exactly godly, but we can't stop it. Like, for instance, casinos and sports betting. Now, the Bible is clear. The Bible doesn't say that gambling is a sin, but it does encourage us to be good stewards of our money. As we're going to read a little bit later on, that we're, we're warned to stay away from um, obsession and, and love of money. It also encourages us to stay away from get-rich-quick schemes. We see that in Proverbs. God blesses us all with the amount of money that we receive, and we've got to use it in ways that glorify him. Trying to flip it over to make more money doesn't, doesn't do that. But could you imagine if Green Tree Church organized a trip to Atlantic City with signs and bullhorns trying to stop gamblers from going into casinos and trying to stop people who work in casinos from going in and, and, and working? It's not going to further the gospel. What we can do is like Paul did regarding slavery, share a godly perspective on the matter, with loads of grace, not beating anybody up over the head with the Bible, just being gentle. 
So that's what Paul said specifically about slavery. So that's the surface stuff. What's he say in spirit? What's the overarching meaning of these verses to us today? I'll let the cat out of the bag very early. Verses 1 and 2 is all about submission. Now, by nature, just by itself, the day that we're born, we are adverse to that word. But with the social justice issues right now and the COVID pandemic over the past few years, anti-submission nerves have been inflamed. Now, before things started to get kind of out of whack, like, like they are now, I kind of, God opened my eyes to, to how adverse to submission we are. My son was a junior in high school in 2017. And if you have kids, you probably remember that around their junior years, when they start getting loads of brochures and whatnots from schools trying to encourage them to, to enroll. So same thing with my son. Plus, he was a pretty good football player, so he was getting like um, email. Like coaches, when I played, coaches sent you letters. He got emails and texts. He'd be at the table and be like, I just got a text from this coach. You know, that was pretty. But so he had all these things to try to work through. So one morning I came down, and there was a, a stack of brochures and, and, and letters and all these things on, on the table. So he must have been trying to work through something. And I didn't want to be nosy. I just kind of peeked. And I noticed a theme, though on a lot of those brochures and, and the flyers. And it was, most of them had predominantly printed on the front of them things like the university of such and such, where leaders are made, and blank college, we shape today's students into tomorrow's leaders. Now what was interesting about that is a day or two before, we had this really big pep rally at work. We had about 200 employees. And we, we flew in this, this, this organizational motivational speaker. And the, the theme of her message was everybody is a leader. Everybody's a leader. So I'm like, all right. So I'm thinking back to, as I'm looking at those brochures, thinking back to that pep rally and what I'm reading, and I'm going, I get this. I understand it, but this isn't good. I mean, there's, there, there, there's something that's not right about this. I work in human resources. Now, I know if you've heard me speak before, you're probably like, I know, Glenn, you work in human resources. You say it every time you speak, but I do. And one time a friend asked me, what do you do? So I, I do this, I do that. And he said, no, what is it that you do? And I thought about it for a while because it's kind of hard to explain. So I was like, this is what I do. My job is really simple. It's to create an atmosphere where everybody who works, where I support, can, can be successful where every person can be successful. And that makes sense. Now, you know what makes it hard for people to be successful? People. You know, it, they, it's, it, they just, it, I get to see people in a way that a lot of people don't because they work in situations, what I call forced relationships. They have to work together with people that they didn't select and they have to depend on people that they may not even like to make a living. And when money is involved, you see a side of people that's very, very interesting. Sometimes it's scary, sometimes it's funny, but it's always interesting. So, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, it's just the truth. There are a lot of people that don't know how to work. I'm not saying that they're not smart, I'm not saying that they're lazy, they just don't understand what it takes to be an asset to the companies that they work for. And kind of in a, in, a, in a backsided way, it's kind of good for me that they don't, because if everybody just got a handbook and went to work, what would I do? 
You know, so, but, but, so I, I kind of trade in the fact that they don't, they're not good workers. And you know, it's kind of funny that the other day a name came up and we we're going through this roster and I'm going, I, this name, does this person really work here? And so I'm going through it, my assistant, I'm going, I think that this may, this person may be from another property. And uh, so my assistant said, no, no, she comes in, she does her job, and she goes home. And I'm like, that's why I don't know who she is. <laughs> she, she works. You know, so, so, you know, so I'm standing there in this prep, prep rally, and the, the motivational speaker is running around stage going, you're a leader, and you're a leader, and you're a leader. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, don't even point in this young lady's direction because she's not even close to being a leader. You know, but I get it. I mean, what, what are colleges supposed to say? Come to Acme University. We make great followers. And what was the motivational speaker going to say? You're a follower, and you're a follower, and you're a follower. You know, I, I can see how that fails to, to, to motivate. But the reality is, if everybody is a leader, then who's following? So the fact of the matter is, there are no leaders, at, at least there's, unless there's at least one person that, that's following them. So don't get me wrong, I understand how important leadership is. I teach a leadership course and it's, it, 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 it goes over well, but it's, it's just really overrated and it's, it's overvalued. Um, we make a big deal, particularly out of people who were renegade followers that became great leaders. That hardly was ever the case, you probably know that. If they were really renegade fo followers, if they didn't take direction well, they wouldn't be in position to be leaders. So we need followers, but there's a, there's a slam dunk, drop, drop the mic reason why we need to value following even more so than leadership. And that's because following is biblical. It's, it's in the scripture. God doesn't make everyone a leader, but he surely demands that everyone be a follower. Not, not, just, not just spiritually. I mean, we do follow Jesus. I mean, that's in our name. Christian means follower. That means that we forego our, our, our choice to do otherwise, and we go the way that Christ would have us to go. We submit to him. But the principle of submission even exists in the Trinity. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He also said in John 15.26, regarding the Holy Spirit, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son, though they are, though they are equal. So Paul's message of submission in verse 1 aligns with all the other verses regarding submission of other types of earthly authority. I mean, like Ephesians 5.24 hits 2. It says, as the church submits to Christ, so should wives submit to their husbands. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that the church members are, are, are to submit to our pastors. And then we have what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 13, 18. Listen to this. This is kind of covers everything. Be subject, in other words, submissive, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, 
fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So we are to submit to those in authority, not because they're so wise and powerful or because they deserve it, but for the sake of the Lord, because rightful submission exalts God. In a country that's so adverse to the very word submission, when we do so in godly ways, it demands an explanation. And the reason is for the glory of God. So yes, while on the surface, in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, Paul is speaking about slavery, but the overall message to us, the, the, the closely related message, is how we respond to our bosses, for those who God has put um, above us. So whether it's work managers, or it could also be volunteer endeavors, like church or community settings. Um, when we were here on Saturday, breaking down that stage, we had two people that were in authority, James and, and, and Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, and Doug. And it was our responsibility to follow. And you guys did a great job, too. Especially when you said we were going to get out at 12 and we got out before 10 o'clock. That was nice, James. Thank you. <laughs> sorry about your back, though. <laughs> um, this includes athletes and coaches. It includes students to teachers, whether the student is a preschool student or a doctoral candidate. So as this passage regarding the bond servants pertains to us, we are obligated for the glory of God to live out the spirit of this message according to how it relates to our daily life. So the rest of verse 1, and I promise I'm not going to spend as much time on the other verses as I did now. If I did, we'd be out at like 1130. So the rest of verse 1, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So Paul is telling us followers how to treat our leaders, which is worthy of all honor, meaning full respect. And respect is a characteristic or value that's, that's really not held in high esteem these days. Like, no error was ever perfect with showing respect to their elders or those in authority, but it seems like it gets worse and worse, right? So <clears throat> some of the ways that, in, that employees treat their masters with disrespect is, is sadly amazing. Just the way that, that, they, that they talk to them and what they refuse to do. In our new hire orientation, we actually spend 15 minutes talking about insubordination. Like, this is what your boss can tell you to do, and this is how you're supposed to respond to it. It's unheard of. It's stuff that we probably, we, we learned when we were in the, five years old. I'd say that there's more instances of remarkable disrespect, things that make you go, wow, could you believe that, than there are instances of remarkable respect. It's the ones who do their job that we don't hear about at work. Now, we do do our best to try to, you know, celebrate them, but unfortunately, it's, it's, the, it's the ones who don't know how to work that get most of the attention. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, Mr. Glenn, I'm the kind of person that gives respect when I get respect. I wouldn't be a wealthy man, but I'd be financially well off. It happens all the time. And I don't see any provisions to be less than respectful to work leaders based on the level of respect that they give us. I mean, we just read 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So, why are we to, supposed to treat our masters with respect? As we're told in, in 1 Timothy 6.1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
meaning that God and the life he tells us to live will not be shamed by our failure to respect those who God has put in leadership over us. So that people can't question our faith or say, I don't see any difference between you and the unbelieving world. So that people would not be pushed away from God, but they would be drawn to him. First half of verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So for those of us following Christian leaders, we shouldn't expect preferential treatment because we share the same faith. Second half of verse 2. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So now, although we need to put forward our best foot even for unbelieving and, and, and unkind leaders, we need to especially be diligent to be great followers of believing leaders because they're our brothers in Christ. And in doing so, blesses them and exalts God. Last part of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. So to Timothy, Paul is instructing him to pass on this teaching to bond servants that he will encounter throughout his ministry, or maybe he's dealing with them right now. And to us, Paul is emphasizing that we need to influence people to be good followers, whether they be employees, students, athletes, or anyone put in, the, uh, in a position to have to follow someone else. And we just don't have to look too hard these days to see that this isn't something that happens all the time. It's not something that's being passed on to generation to generation. In fact, it could be argued that not only are new gener or younger generations being taught to follow, they're being taught not to follow. Now, sometimes it's overt. They're specifically being taught to disobey. I've heard it. I've seen it, especially dealing with younger employees and their parents get involved. I heard a phone call, there, this was, it was amazing. Something happened with this young man's check. What his father was telling him to tell us was deplorable. And the, the young man had more sense than his dad because he didn't say it. And as his dad is like, you tell them, and he's cussing them out, and he's like, and the, the tears were running down this guy's face. And when he was done, I hugged him. I said, I, I heard that. And thank you for not responding like that. And you may not know this, but Christ was all over this. And he kind of looked at me. But that was the fact that he didn't do that was amazing. It's, it, it's sad. But, but <clears throat> the case is more likely that not only are people being, it's not so much that people are told to actively not obey, but they're getting subtle messages not to. They get messages that, you know, from their parents, believing that their kids are as special to everybody else as they are to them. I coached football for a long time. You'll be amazed how many Heisman Trophy winners I obviously coached. You know, my son needs a start. Your son doesn't even like the sport. You know, um, uh, told over and over that they're, that they're leaders and not followers. Um, people overemphasizing and often misinterpreting governmental and legal rights. You know, these things construct inflamed perceptions of self-entitlement and decreased levels of accountability. Again, if I had a dollar for every time an employee took legal action because they lost their job for doing things like, and I kid you not, I'm going through this right now, not coming to work. We're dealing with a case where somebody just stopped coming to work and now this person is suing us. The thing is, it happens so much that it's like garden variety. Here's another one, here, just somebody deal with that. I wouldn't be wealthy, but I have a lot of money. 
It happens a lot. First part of verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. We'll stop right there. Now we see here that Paul has taken, hasn't taken his foot off the gas regarding false teachers. He started talking about this in, 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 in chapter 4. Now right here, now in chapter 4 he was talking more specifically about Gnosticism and myths. Right now he's just adding another kind of false teaching to that. And this false teaching, at least at this point, is the teaching that people, at least the bond servants, shouldn't obey their, their masters. Verse 4. Anyone who teaches that is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Regardless of what type of false teaching they're teaching, a person promoting a position other than, God's, than the word of God is arrogant and has an inflated opinion of themselves. Though they think they have everything figured out, the fact of the matter is they have no idea what they're talking about. But they speak so intelligently and, and convincingly that they're able to make people believe that they're experts in God's word, but they really just misconstrue it. Next part of the verse. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and going a little bit into verse 5, a constant, in, in constant friction. Oftentimes, people who distort God's word are amazingly articulate, they're, 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 they're gifted, they're charismatic. The average Christian may not be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. But they use their ability, it sounds like a superhero thing, they use their ability, they use their powers for evil instead of good. And the results of that is quarreling and, and envy and jealousy and some of the other things that, that Paul mentioned. Now, the rest of verse 5 informs us that these false teachers don't have that effect on everybody. So listen, it says, all those negative outcomes, the quarreling and, and all that, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So it's among people who are deprived in mind and deprived in truth. So those whose hearts are committed to God aren't going to be as susceptible to these kind of messages, this kind of teaching, than those whose hearts are committed to them. They may not be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, but the Spirit is going to lead them in a different direction. So Paul is speaking about people who only act godly in order to enrich themselves. They're the ones that's going to be more impacted by this kind of teaching. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul is saying that, yes, there is gain in godliness, but it comes with a condition that those who really aren't Christians, those who are using his word for gain, lack. And this condition is contentment. And the importance of contentment has to be learned. Because we can read what Paul is saying and understand that he even expressed discontentment somehow, but learned that that wasn't a good thing. Because in Philippians 4.11, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So, obviously, this is something that he picked up along the way. And if somebody is godly and as disciplined as he needed to learn that, how much more for us? The phrase contentment is great gain is kind of a clever and interesting play on words. Because contentment means being satisfied with what we have, not wanting more. But Paul says that there's gain in it. So, <clears throat> not only gain, he says there's great gain and being happy with just what we have. So, so what's the great gain that accompanies godliness that Paul is talking about? 
It's the freedom from the burden of, and, and pressure of frivolous in, endeavors, like trying to gain more things, more power, more position, or anything else that um, verse 7 tells us, tells us about is meaningless the moment that we die. Verse 7 reads, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You never see a U-Haul trailer hooked up to a hearse and a funeral procession, right? We, we, we can't take it with us. Uh, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Meaning we will, we, we will or should learn how to be content with the, with the bare minimum. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't want things or we can't have nice things. It's the desiring and pursuing those things in ways that dishonor God that's the sin. It's not the thing itself. And this leads us into verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So there's, there's gain in not putting ourselves in position to be ensnared and brought to ruin and, and destruction. This doesn't mean that everybody who strives for those things are going to someday end up in the gutter, even though it does increase the opportunity for it. Last verse. For the love of money is a root of all kind of evil. Note, contrary to popular belief, particularly for people that have no idea what the Bible says, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says money is a root of all kinds of evils. So money in and of itself is not evil. It's an important and unescapable aspect of life because God has designed our lives to, 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 to need that. He provides it to us in accordance to what he wants us to have. Some have more, some have less. It's okay to want a little more, but the question is, what are we willing to do or not do to get it, and what do we do with it when we have it? So this is Paul's point. Money is a root to all kind of evil because the love or obsession of it makes people act in ungodly ways. So the rest of the verse tells us that the lust for riches can lead to apostasy, which is a renouncing of Christianity. So it's a person who at one point confessed that they were Christian, and then they said, no, I don't, I, I don't want to have anything else to do with this. It says, some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, meaning, meaning many sorrows. So they turned from the faith, and as Paul mentioned in verse 9, plunged into ruin and destruction. Doesn't mean that we'll always find people that have rejected God for greed, physically or, or destroyed and destitute, though, again, this sometimes happens. But when a person turns from God and follows anything else, they've already ruined themselves spiritually. A person who turns from the faith and, and goes another direction is already ruined. If they continue that path, it's going to prove that they were never Christians in the first place. They turned back, they were wayward. By God's grace, he pulled them back. So I'm going to end with this tonight. Our greatest testimony is for, for Christ and the most poignant sermon that any of us can preach is to live a lifestyle that makes people want to know what makes us different. We live in a world right now bent on defiance and, and focused on discontentment and a, and a lust for more. If we submit to the will of God and honor those who he has placed in authority over us, and we graciously accept what God has given us and glorify him with it, we stand out in ways that demand an explanation. P 
people are going to ask, why are you different? Some people are going to be drawn to us. Praise God for that. Some people are going to be repelled by us. Praise God for that if we're doing all this in God's name. So may God bless us with those opportunities to answer that question and give us the right words to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, God. And Father, we pray that you would do in us what only you can do with this message. Help us to live it out, God. Again, we do pray that you would give us opportunity to, to share your word and what you've done for us in our lives with others. Father, let us not be a stumbling block to the grace and mercy that could be peoples who don't know you and the, and the grace and mercy that is those who do know you. Help us, Father, to further your kingdom, God. Enrich us with your blessings that we may glorify you this day and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.